Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner on TRSI. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. We do apologise that we weren't with you earlier in the week. I know normally you only have to wait one day between the shows, and that's a day of sadness and silence. <laughs> Whereas this week there were many days, because you may have noticed uh, that there was an election on, and if you didn't notice that, uh, God help you, because that's pretty much all we're talking about today. And we're not talking about the Uzbekistan one either. No, we are talking about the uh, the American election. An election which by all polling, uh, all public polling, bar two, I think, pollsters who were Republican-leaning and Republican-aligned, was meant to be an incredibly boring night in which Joe Biden systematically crushed Donald Trump took back the Senate, increased the lead in the House, and uh, Trump's history of racism and bigotry was consigned to the uh, dustbin of history. It was going to be a blue wave. Sweeping away the regressive forces. And then it was an odd moment, very early in the evening. Was We weren't even an hour, were we? An hour, two hours? I think about an hour, Florida had closed. And the news came in that Trump was 150,000 votes up in Miami-Dade. And everybody sort of went, what? Which, for those who don't know, Miami-Dade, very, very democratic. Very blue. And that led to what actually became a fascinating election. I stayed up for it with a bottle of Taiwanese whiskey, thinking I would just watch the start of it. We'd see what would happen. And uh, I'd go to bed. And then I stayed up for, I think, the entire thing. Stayed up till about 6 or 7 a.m. Because it was fabulous fun. It was just, you can't look away now, television. Um, it, you mentioned the polls. What was quite fun almost immediately in the aftermath was the sight of Nate Silver quietly explaining that actually they hadn't got it that wrong at all, you know. And if you really understood polling, that, you know... It was within the margins a lot of the time, and some of the state polling was... But we had said, and it was all about probability, you see. You have to understand probability, and that's not... We had actually said that this could happen. Now, since Nate Silver had probably said pretty well any scenario could happen at some stage, he was probably fairly well covered there. Nate Silver, for those who don't know, is the head of 538, which is sort of the premier aggregate polling and analysis website. He used to be involved with the New York Times, and then he broke away to do his own thing, which I think is owned by ESPN. Anyway, it's a it's a big money venture, and Nate Silver is held up as a guru of polling. And he was very strong on the 2016, Was there were issues with the weighing, and they're all fixed. He was also very strong in the fact that at the national polling, there were only actually 2% out that uh, the national popular vote for Clinton was, they were pretty close, but the problem was they had missed out on the states. And yeah, since, he, since it's a federal system, and then at the end of the day, the, the, the total popular vote doesn't really matter a fuck, it's kind of important. Yeah, there's been a, a thing, and it, if it hasn't happened in an Irish newspaper, it'll happen shortly, of indigenous polling companies coming out to explain why either the American polls weren't off by that much, or America is different than Europe because we use rigorous uh, scientific approaches to polling that the Americans are too backwards to get behind. Yeah. 
which may be slightly influenced by the fact that their industry requires people to believe the information they're getting is accurate in order to exist. And if it doesn't, that might have a bad impact on them. Yeah, if people were to decide that it's probably just as useful to go into some local pub in small town Ireland and ask the people there in return for a pint or two what their opinion about any subject was, then they might find that their business model would be in trouble. So they always say, now, I am I'm, I'm sceptical, Gary, about the notion that American polling um, is that backward simply because the amount of money in an American election, in American politics, is staggering. I mean, staggering. Many years ago, an American lawyer friend of mine said to me, um, I should have gone to the States years ago. He said, you know, you don't even have, you don't have to be good at it. You'd enjoy it. And there is, the industry is massive. The state of Kentucky has a population just slightly smaller, I think, than the Republic of Ireland. And one of the candidates in the Senate race spent somewhere between 73 and 80 million dollars on the race. Gary, can you imagine what it would look like if Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael spent $80 million on a general election campaign? There would be a Fine Gael poster on every lamppost, bollard, dog, homeless person between here and the ocean. Every other person would have their own jeep. And they would be handing out iPhones to, they would be, they would be, every, they, they, every pub would be given vouchers for free beer and steak. It would be just $80 million for sentencing. I came across one ref, they're, they're talking about, you know, the, the difference in stuff. In one city, admittedly a big city, they, they, they said, they're talking about the, what was the money on, I think it was the board of, the, the education board, the school board, I oh, yeah, it's the school board in this city. I think they said it was $12 million was spent on campaigning for the, school, for the school board. And remember, in America, everything is election. There's an election for everything. There's an election for the school board. There's an election for the district attorney, the prosecutors. There's most judges, any judge who isn't a federal judge, is elected. Governors, vice governors, attorney generals, uh, comptroller generals, every, how, every, every, Baron Nebraska, which is unicameral, every state has a house of a house and a senate, and a governor, all of their own, and, and each county, and the sheriffs, the money, it must run into tens of billions in the end of the year, what's spent on local, county, state, well, national well, politics. I mean, I can give you an idea of how bad the spend was this year. Like, Donald Trump ran out of money. Like Donald, the Trump yeah. campaign ran out of money. Mm. They fundraised incredible amounts. Uh, but the last couple of weeks, they were actually shy of uh, money. Wasn't it last, in the last go, Hillary spent a billion, didn't she? That I was think the figure in that region. The figure was in around a billion for Hill spending. 
she decided not to take uh, state funding because if you take state funding then you're limited you can only take that and that's it so if you, you stand outside and take it you can do what you want so I suppose the election as it currently stands the postal ballots are being counted in when we're recording this in Georgia Nevada uh, North Carolina Pennsylvania and, and Michigan Wisconsin <sighs> And Arizona. Arizona, yeah. Did I say Nevada? Yes, Nevada, yes. You said Nevada. In most of those, it Georgia, it looks too, effectively too tight to call. Donald Trump has about 5,000 votes ahead of Biden. There's less than 1% of the votes to be counted. So that could go either way, depending on exactly where the ballots are left. Mm-hmm. Nevada... We'll skip because by the time you hear this, these will probably have been decided. So we'll just skip the actual what's likely to happen. Other than to say, it is now likely that Joe Biden will become the next president. I think that seems the odds on, bar and a miracle of some kind, or the Republicans being able to find some proof of systemic voter fraud that they can actually hang a court case on. This is going to Biden. Or. Or if they can find a bag of oats behind the sofa. Many, many bags in certain places. Meh. Uh, let's see. He, there is 0.3% of the vote left to come in in Georgia. And he has a lead of 3,000. So he wouldn't need a very big bag in Georgia. North Carolina, he'll probably win. But, you know, why not get a bag there? Uh, Nevada, really where he wants to find the bag is Pennsylvania. And they have been finding bags, to be fair, Gary, in Pennsylvania. I mean, I'm social media is awash with what claims from both sides that may be true or may not be true. And I don't know. And to be frank, I'm not going to invest the amount of time in this to figure out what is the wheat and what is the chaff. Yeah, because the problem is, will it make any difference in the end anyway? No, there there have been... The American electorate, you're looking at, what, 150 million people voted this time? It was a lot of people. And everybody's all happy about that. I don't understand why people think it's a great thing. We have we've a high turnout. Low turnout generally means that things are quite good. Uh, oh, God, how long ago is it now? 70 years ago when Hayek was writing... Uh, I, the Road to Liberty, I think it was. One of the things he did was to do an analysis of voter turnout. And even though Switzerland practices direct democracy, uh, so if you have local issues, literally like some the people of Ballinasloe want to decide something, they get into the square in Ballinasloe and they vote on it. And that gets fairly high turnout. But sort of if you like, at a federal level in Switzerland, they don't have terribly high voting. And he says that Kayak's analysis was, and I think he was probably right, is that you get high turnout when people are afraid, when people perceive that there is a danger or if there is a, or a risk of some substantial unpleasant change to their circumstances occurring. If people are fairly phlegmatic about the state of the management of the country and they think, yeah, if it goes this way, it goes that way, yeah, okay, I prefer one thing rather than another, but they're not that bothered you get lower turnout. That low turnout is more a sign of a stable, comfortable democracy than high turnout. But we are mad for 
why we want to, these kind of half-baked loons and idiots that otherwise wouldn't be able to find their way, wouldn't be able to find their shoes to walk to the polling station. Why we think it's a great thing to make everything as easy as possible for them to vote. I don't know. I think we should make it harder for people to vote. Well, at least harder for other people to vote. I think not voting is a perfectly respectable democratic choice. Absolutely. And I encourage those of opposing political views to take it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people who just think like me, I think, you know, they should really seriously consider staying at home and having a cup of tea. So, I mean, I, the gripped authors, a lot of them, not you, Michael, because you didn't send yours in in time. I wasn't sent one. Oh, I'm, you were told it was happening. Gave their prediction for who they thought would uh, win the election. You will be unsurprised that there were a lot of Trump because people tend to believe the thing they like will win the election. John McGurk said Biden wins, estimated 305 to Biden. Could still could still hit that. I uh, I chickened out, as John was kind enough to add in a little editorialising line to the bottom of it, and said that by the polling, Donald Trump is going to be crushed by Biden. But when you look at the fundamentals, Donald Trump is doing great. Yes. And so these two things don't align, and anything from a Biden landslide to a respectable Trump win, I could see happening. Yeah. What I didn't mention in that, but what I was aware of at the time, and this may be cheating, Michael, is that I had been talking to some of the people I know in the Republican Party, and they were saying that their private polling for Trump, contingent upon the Get Out the Vote campaign working properly, was very positive for him, that they thought he would win, and they were actually more concerned about the Senate. All right. So, knowing that, I was like, well, someone has fucked up here. Mm. And private polling, I have generally found, can be much more accurate than public polling, if done correctly. Because public polling is generally done for a purpose. It's generally, sometimes it's for lobbying, sometimes it's to push a particular point of view. NGOs, think tanks, they all... These are, this is just something they do. They want particular answers a lot of the time. News media shouldn't, but oftentimes will go with pollsters who kind of give them the answers they want. And beyond that, it was a very different... You, When you poll people, you have to weigh each one. And you can actually get into quite an advanced sort of thing there, and it's very easy to fuck it up. Spectacularly fuck it up, in fact. And I'm not, I'm not buying this whole, the polls weren't far off. Some of the polls were off 8%. 11% some of them. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, to a point, take what you're saying about the thing, about private polling. I think private polling sometimes sometimes can be more accurate because private polling tends not to look at macro, at a macro result, but they look for smaller, they're looking at smaller areas. And rather than extrapolating from national polls, using a national poll to extrapolate to an area, that, say like a Wisconsin or Michigan or whatever, they actually go and they do a full proper poll in the state and maybe they get closer. I still think that people are running constantly, like Marist or whoever, who run polls consistently through an election. For their business model, they want to be right. I just think that it's one of the problems, there are a couple of problems. I think there may be a technical problem, in the, particularly in the United States now, with trying to work out how to get to all of the voters of all, that you need 
I, I, I don't quite agree with you on that because there were some pollsters like Trafalgar who are more Republican aligned who were able to get it broadly right. Yeah, but Trafalgar did also have gone away from using a traditional polling model. And I think... And they, and they got it right this time. I think the problem is that if you're using what they were calling it, they're using they're marrying a traditional, uh, a traditional weighted polling system with what they call a closed black, black box algorithm. That that's, if you can do that, it that that's great. But it's very hard to do that, uh, and it can th- you can throw that can throw out a, another time and throw you completely weird. I, I, Trafalgar were wildly mocked. Oh yeah, absolutely. Trafalgar were considered to be basically just propaganda for the Republicans. Including by by some people in the polling industry itself who should have known better. Uh, I think Nate Silver did do a bit of a jump in as well. What you said there about they want to be right for their professional reputation, I would add a little amendium to that. You want to be right, or you want to be wrong in the same way everyone else is wrong. Yeah, and then you can explain that you were wrong. We were all the election wrong. was different. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it, it couldn't have been polled accurately. No, yeah, I take your point of that. For example, okay, Trafalgar did better. Also, um, as a number of people pointed out, um, the Des Moines Register, who now the Des Moines Register had had a bit of a a bit of a an embarrassing mo- moment because they covered the, the excuse me I have some hickory cups from Norm in particular they cover the Iowa caucuses which are the first caucuses that occur, occur in the primary season so Iowa and New Hampshire are the early the early birds of the primary season anyway there was a bit of a mix up with their data and they didn't actually get the results out for the for the caucus their um their prediction for the caucus and then something happened i think the, i don't know if there was soup there was a big football game or super bowl or something and then new hampshire happened and it was it was all over and there was no use so they were very embarrassed by that so they were they were very careful about their last poll in iowa now i think most polls were showing biden like up half a point or a point in iowa and Seltzer did the poll in Iowa for Des Moines. Now Des Moines has historically had a very good reputation, and they gave Trump up seven. And everybody said nonsense. It was regarded as being one of those comical things that happens in polling every so often. And people even implied that there was some kind of a shenanigan or a political agenda or something going on some some ways. Lo and behold. What did he win by in Iowa? Seven? Eight? Seven, I believe. Seven, seven and a half. It was absolutely on the nose. So some people did get it right. So, I mean, you you are correct that in that. I would concede that. There were some really interesting things that happened in this election that weren't expected. Like Donald Trump taking the largest share of minority voters for the Republican Party since 1960 when Nixon was running. And also remember that Richard Nixon and his wife were personal friends of Martin Luther King. And it was Richard Nixon that got, it was Richard Nixon that got King out of prison. Uh, Up till then, it was perfectly normal and common, particularly for older leaders of the black community in the United States to be Republicans. It's really only, it's the, the 1960 election is kind of the change election 
after which increasingly you see the, the shift. Now, part of that happens also with Nixon. Because Nixon, I think, is it in is it sixty eight or seventy two possibly? They execute what is called the Southern Strategy, where they start to try to appeal to Southern conservative voters. Yeah, so nineteen seventy two, he go Nixon goes against George McGovern, and Nixon gets. Do you remember what the electoral vote total was for that year? Oh, he wiped him out. McGovern was. He Nixon, and this is this will give you an idea of how, how popular Richard Nixon actually was before he had to resign. Nixon received five hundred and twenty electoral college votes. His opponent received seventeen. Did George Wallace run in that election, or was that sixty-eight? I can't remember because there was a third-party candidate in one of those elections. But Richard Nixon carried forty-nine states. Mm. In a two-party system, the map is ridiculous. It's also worth remembering how things change. Just to contextualize the way things change, Richard Nixon was a Californian uh, Republican and took California. Later on, Ronald Reagan was also a Californian Republican. Took California. Uh, in fact, Reagan was uh, a Republican governor of California in the 60s, two-term governor. We think of California now as this irredeemably blue state, Democrat to the core, and it is, but not that long ago. I mean, Reagan famously said on his second, his second election he took, again, 49 states. What would you like for Christmas? I think the only state he didn't take was, um, wasn't it Mondale's state? I think Mondale was, I want to say Minnesota, and he said, what would you like for Christmas, Miss President? And I said, well, I'd, like, I'd quite like Minnesota. So that, that's really interesting. We will talk about that. There's one thing I wanted to touch on beforehand, and it's this. It's the allegations of voter fraud. Ah, right, Which yes. are coming. Donald Trump just gave a speech where he said it just before we started recording. He said that, you know, by legitimate votes, we won. There have been videos and things all over social media, mostly on passing between the right wing there's other stuff happening with left-wing social media different types of misinformation but we'll just focus on what's happening uh, among some of the republicans in america you are looking at electorate of 150 million people it is undoubted that some fraud happened simply because you cannot have an election of 150 million people without fraud of some degree but Gary, uh, irrespective of even the size of the electorate, fraud has, has been part of the American electoral system for a hell of a long time in a way that I don't believe has been typical, really, of elections, say, in, the, in, in, in Ireland or in the United Kingdom. It's the, maybe the size of the, the... I don't know why, but think of Tammany Hall back uh, in, in the beginning of the 20th century, the kinds of things that used to go on in New York. The fact, I mean, when Kennedy, whether it's true or false, and there's, there's a degree of truth in it, famously, uh, Jack Kennedy said, is it true you're, when he was asked, was it? Somebody said to him something like, are you, you, you're you buying the election for your son? Because Jack, Jack Kennedy's father, what was his? Joe, 
was one of the richest wet men in the United States. He's, I got remember was it he said you know I think it was to the the joke was to the to his son. He said, "I remember, lads, I, I'm boys. I'm buying you a win. I'm not buying a landslide here." But Chicago, famously, Chicago is a fiefdom of the daily of of the dailies, the Democratic and a Democratic center, and they a combination of the mafia and uh, Mayor Daly's uh, troop won Chicago and their Cook County and then uh, stuffed the ballots in Cook County and, and took uh, Illinois for Kennedy, which was the winning of the election. It was a very tight election against uh, Nixon. Barely won the, the, the popular vote. So there's always been, I mean, particularly in the large urban areas, shall we say. But, and back in the days of Jim Crow, I mean, if you're talking in the South, the levels of intimidation and disenfranchisement, legal and illegal, of of uh, black voters was absolutely par for the course. So, yes, America does have a rich history of corruption in its electoral affairs. And just the sheer size of it will ensure that there was fraud of some level. Postal votes, there's an argument about whether or not they make it easier to commit electoral fraud. I think with some of the laws we saw in some of the states, like signatures not having to match and stuff like that, certain states, yes. Other states, quite rigorous controls um, about postal votes that I don't think would have been an issue. But in order for the election to be materially compromised, you would have to see not just fraud, but systemic fraud, either organised by the parties or organised by the state apparatus that was in control of the ballots or the counting of those ballots. Yeah. And until someone can show me evidence that that happened, okay, I would accept there will be individual instances, but unless someone can show me actual evidence of a systemic issue, a systemic issue to attempt to exploit weaknesses, electoral system, it's just a theory. It's just a conspiracy theory. I, I don't think it is compelling we we've been hearing about this kind of thing in the last 20 years constantly from i'm 30 for, from people in the right in the states about certain areas it seems to me if this was really happening above the anecdotal level somebody would have found would it somebody would have done an investigation somebody would have been able to find proof because there are so many people involved to make this happen you're never going to be able to keep it if it was happening, it would have to be a conspiracy involving so many different people doing so many different things. You, you know, what's the other thing? You can only keep a secret when they're with, with two people and when, when one of them is dead. Over the years, somebody would have come out. They would have, been, they would have been able to find proof if there was proper systemic, substantial vote cheating going on, I think. But I know that people I know will tell me that I'm being incredibly naive and, and silly to believe that. And they know you know. So, yeah, entirely possible that there are examples that people will find of individual corruption. The only, the only thing I saw where you could actually say that is legitimately worrying. Now, there are court cases, by the way, going on all over the place and judges are being involved everywhere. So stuff is being investigated. Now, if stuff is brought forward for investigation, is reviewed, and a judge comes back and says, yeah, there was a legitimate problem here, it's totally kosher. But until that point, we've no proof of anything. The Attorney General of Pennsylvania is the only person I saw who may have stepped over the line. 
he stepped way over the line and it's the kind it's the kind of thing that people would have expected Trump on a bad day to say and had he said it he would have been crucified across all of the all of the mainstream uh, news outlets in the states so what uh, what happened is he uh, he said before the the actual vote before the count that all the votes would be counted and Joe Biden would win now the attorney general is responsible for overseeing the integrity of the vote so you don't want to come out ahead of the vote and say anything that can be construed as you uh you know having a favorite and then on the day of the vote he put up a thing that said look if you're having trouble voting there's any issues call this number and the number he gave was not the state helpline for that it was the democratic party helpline now obviously he the attorney general is in an elected position in pennsylvania he is a democrat but I have a feeling the Republicans will use both of those in some form of court case and try and argue that that constitutes electoral interference. I think what they're really looking at here, rather than what you we might imagine we're talking about, if we talk about electoral shenanigans or corruption, are votes being votes that are of doubt doubtful whether they actually follow all of the rules. Not that somebody has gone off and found 150,000 blank papers and filled them in and then put them into a box somewhere. But rather, for example, there was a decision made by the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania that certain kinds of votes that would have previously, that under the legislation which was passed when Pennsylvania reformed its electoral laws last year, they set out a certain number of rules regarding how the votes were to be presented on, under what time frame. Because of the, the court case was taken because of the pandemic, the court took it onto itself to relax to a degree some of those rules and to say the certain votes will be valid. Now, it is this, the, the, the argument of the Republicans is that it's the job of the legislature and only of the legislature to make rules regarding uh, voting. Not the job, it, 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 that doesn't fall under the purview of the the courts. And so they are acting, as in, they would say in law, ultra vires, beyond their powers to do that. And therefore, those votes which are being considered and are being allowed in as valid votes are should actually be excluded because they don't fall within the rules set down by the legislature. It's that kind of thing, like you mentioned, whether or not the date stamp is clear. If it's not, if it's clear, then they're being allowed. If the signatures match, if they if they arrive not by five o'clock on the day after the election, but that's been extended to five o'clock on the Friday following the election, and so on. So that, these are the issues that they're they're concerned about. Other than other than the uh, Attorney General of Pennsylvania, I didn't see anything which was totally unexplainable i saw things that people were saying were a particular thing and then upon further investigation turned out to if perhaps questionable be legal yeah but i wouldn't be surprised if uh, mr shapiro the attorney general of uh, pennsylvania's name is josh shapiro uh, i wouldn't be surprised if he did actually inadvertently perhaps uh, break a law on electoral interference because they don't tend to play around. Mm. No, there are all sorts of videos going around, as you said, Gary. People making allegations about postal workers being involved in collecting ballots that had been left behind. And 
they do seem in certain places to be rather, how would I say, more lax than we would be about these things, uh, where you can pick up where you know, these things are just sent out and every there are, there are there's early voting, there's early voting in person, there's postal voting, and then there's on the day voting, and these things get very complicated. Now look at Florida. Florida had all sorts of problems in tw in two thousand. And it went back and it reformed its system, and Florida now seems to count without any great difficulty. I think you'll probably see the number of states, you'd hope anyway, a number of states will go back and reform this. I mean, I was talking to somebody there who has some knowledge of the system in India, which is a pretty large democracy with a pretty large voting population. And he said, you know, we manage it better than this in India. What the hell is going on? But I suppose in India they have a uniform system for, for these elections, whereas in the States every state makes its own rules, has its own timetables. That's the joy of a truly federal system. just wanted to mention that because we have gotten a couple of queries from people just asking us where we stand on the, the allegations of voter fraud. And I think that is it. I've seen no evidence of systemic voter fraud. All instances should be investigated and improperly cast votes should be invalidated, but this is an election, proof is required. And I don't think Trump, I think Trump is, is he's going, he's almost certainly going to lose, barring a miracle. But the speech he just gave, a lot of the Republicans are not going to accept that. Mm -hmm. It's just, he is going to be very rapidly shown the door, unless he has enough force to keep himself there. And I don't think he does. But... In Trump's defeat, there were many interesting things for the Republican Party. There are also many interesting things for the Democratic Party. Uh, so I, I think the racial thing is probably the most interesting immediately. Well, you know, and we're talking about we're talking about the polls and polls getting it wrong. There was one thing that did seem to be was coming out in in polls, but also in in data about new registration, which was interesting. And I I I got one thing. I got actually I got two things right. I thought he'd lose Wisconsin. Which is not a big deal, but I did, I did say when everybody was thought, oh, Wisconsin is 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 well. I said no, no. I think I'd be worried about Wisconsin. I I I I believe that as, you know what I think that there's a very good chance that even if Trump loses this election, that this is actually going to be in a way a, a change election, and maybe good news for the Republicans and bad news for the Democrats, in a fairly serious way. And I think that this no, it's. It's very easy to call these things too soon. The exit polling and the exit polling may not be absolutely accurate, but there's some very interesting stuff going on in the exit polling, um, which shows the Democrats for a long time, I should contextualize it, have been waiting for this day when the United States would stop being a white country whatever that means. And to be honest, I say whatever that means because, you know, it's when they be, people have become so obsessed with defining people by ethnicity and race, it's like we're back in the South in the 1860s applying the one drop rule desperately. So is he a, he's a quadroon and he's a mulatto and he's an octoroon and he's white, but he's Mexican, but he's Mexican white because he's got blue eyes, but he's one of those other kinds of Mexicans because he just, he looks more like an Indian. And it's just bizarre this thing but there was this belief that the united states was stopping my country and that would be the end for the republican party 
that there were this multicultural, multi-ethnic coalition which would obviously and inevitably vote democratic and that would be it. There would never again be a Republican elected. Yeah, it was, uh, it was referred to as demographic determinism. Yeah. The idea that eventually the Democratic Party would simply naturally rule forever and it would be impossible for Republicans to win. The problem with that is that uh, racial minorities are people and people tend to have preferences. And if you think that you can, the people owe you their allegiance just intrinsically because of that, you don't tend to try and work to get them on side. Mm. And uh, weirdly enough, even massive historical commitments to one party can start to break down. Yeah, and particularly when you singularly fail to respect or speak to their values. So this has been a issue with the Democratic Party for a while. The activists who run the Democratic Party, almost all white, college-educated, are far more aggressive on racial affairs and far more socially liberal than most of the ethnic minority voters they claim to represent. Black voters in particular are horrendously socially conservative. But beyond that, if you poll black voters specifically on racial issues say, is America less racist or more racist? Uh, how much racism do you encounter in your life? Attitudes to white people and this kind of thing. But on, on racism in the United States generally, they are less concerned and less negative about racism in the United States than upper, mid, upper middle class white liberals in the northeast of the United States, for whom race is far more consuming. And we saw today, I mean, all across social media, when you had some people who are from African-American backgrounds or Hispanic or whatever, talking about the reasons why people might have voted for Trump, being lectured about this by white academics. <laughs> you know, that. I said to you earlier, Gary, some of these people have the capacity to learn of a sponge. Do you, see, you saw, I mean, in the, you saw this, you saw the tweet from a prominent Democrat saying, we need to speak less about blue and red and more about whiteness. Yeah, I, I, the legitimate confusion I've seen from people on the Democratic left going, but why would minorities vote for someone who is openly a white supremacist? And you and I have talked about this before, Michael, the issue of, uh, of vocabulary and of understanding the people on your left. I think the example I tend to use is the abortion referendum, which I worked in on the pro-life side. When I would see public people talking about the people I worked with in that campaign who are more public facing than I was. Yes. And they would be like, they, these are, you know, right wing zealots. They're far right. Fascists. And then I know these people. And most of these people are socially conservative, old school left wing Republicans. Yeah. That's, that's about the height of it. I say at the, if you're at the upper echelons of large sections of the pro-life movement, that's exactly what they are. Drives me wrong. The number of times I would sit and have, end up having conversations with these people about economics or social policy and you think, God almighty, would you come down? No, I mean, it's it's to the extent that I got one of the leaders of the Irish pro-life movement a Margaret Thatcher biography as a present, <laughs> purely because I knew she was too polite a person not to read it, but that every minute of it would be awful. And this was the official biography of margaret thatcher by the way the hagiography not the biography the sainthood of saint margaret but 
people don't understand that. They don't understand the splits, pretty much any movement other than their own. And I don't know if you noticed this, Gary, uh, uh, today, but they did a thing which people do, the rhetorical move, which is they set the bar at a certain level, which is unfeasible, and just say, and this is what's happening, and and therefore it's, it's a nightmare. And what, they're, what the argument they were having today is that in order to convince everybody that Trump isn't a racist or a supremacist and that the Democratic Party isn't and all these people aren't, what they're saying is that racism just means not lynching people and not burning white burning crosses and being a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And if you're not that, you're not a racist. But for example, you think it's okay for police to kill as many black men across America as they like. And that's not racist. That's just nonsense. That's obviously not how ordinary people consider racism. However, it is also true that what the liberal left in the United States would define as being racist is also not what ordinary people would consider racist. And by that and the polling we have, that includes people who are African-American or Latino. And and the the thing about what it is to be Latino is another thing we we should talk about as well, because it turns out when in this this desperate search to be able to create these categories, these categories have turned out to be meaningless because what is a Latino? What is, is a Hispanic? For example, we discover in say Miami-Dade, we don't just have Cuban Americans. Now Cubans have always been Republican in the United States because they tend to be the children of people who came away from Castro and therefore for some reason they have a thing against the left. But they've now been joined by people from Venezuela, from Colombia, from Nicaragua, from El Salvador. And you know what Gary? The word socialism to them is also a bad word. Yeah, I I have seen some wonderful things written about minorities who voted for Trump by very sensible, highly educated people on the left, that in an unkind light, or even any light that isn't exceptionally flattering, are on the face of them racist. Oh, absolutely. They sort of assume that minorities are like children, and they aren't capable of coming to a considered position and voting based on it. An opinion which I I saw several people give was one of the reasons why uh, Hispanic men and black men would vote for Trump is because they like macho men and machismo is important to them. So they voted for Trump because he's more macho. Now, Gary, is that not fairly low grade stereotypical kind of racist? I I saw one from a Democratic pollster giving, I think he was talking to Politico saying that one of the reasons that uh, the Latino, the Hispanic vote hadn't gone for Joe Biden was that they wanted a more visceral uh, election. They wanted to be courted. They wanted to be danced with, sometimes literally. Oh, yeah. Well, you know those Hispanics, they're so passionate and hot-blooded, and they like to do the tango and the rumba and have the parties and, and all the fireworks. And they're basically, they're nice people, Gary, but they're passionate. They don't think with their head. They think more with like with their emotions, so they're they're not like us. They're not kind of no, no. You gotta you gotta shepherd them to the right uh, right decision, and you know, in in the correct manner. You know, because you know sometimes it takes them a while. But just on on the, on the language front, I don't. They don't understand people in opposition to them. There's been some interesting research the last while, which shows that conservatives are better at putting themselves in the position of their opponents. And it's effectively a game you can play where you think, 
all right, what does that person believe? And you try and give a summary of it that that person, if you showed it to them, would say, yes, that's what I believe. That's what I think is important. Now, I'm not to say that those who are conservative or libertarian or on the right generally are intrinsically better at that. I think what's happened is that the prevailing culture is so socially permissive that if you are not that way, you are at least aware of it. Yeah, I would agree that to an extent. But I think there is, an, there is another reason why. And that is, it's, it's a problem of perception on the other side. It's not that necessarily that just that conservatives are better at it. It's also that liberals are worse at it. And one of, and one of the reasons is, Gary, I mean, which I think is important here, is liberals consistently underestimate, I mean majorly underestimate, the level for which care is an important value for conservatives. So they, when they project the opinions of conservatives about issues regarding caring or compassion, they 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 imagine that that will be a you know it's like some kind of Victorian mill owner who wants to send the children up the chimney and get the four year olds working on the loom because it's all about profit. They have they they consistently underestimate the the, the that that the role of the value of caring and compassion of conservatives. So when on issues that they would score high, they would put as high. They never imagined the conservatives would also consider these to be high issue as well, and that's and that's very often where the biggest gap happened on those on on those analyses. So yes, conservatives are more exposed to liberal ideas, but also liberals just fail to project their humanity onto conservatives. So I think that's that's a problem in two ways. One, because you end up with things like. The people in that abortion referendum are right-wing by virtue of that fact, ignoring the fact that they are in no way right-wing. They're just socially yeah. conservative. And then because the language is limited, everyone is the same. Like everyone is a Nazi. Mm. And that limits your actual ability to, one, understand the people you're talking about, which tends to be important if you want to continuously or sustainably win against them rather yes. than having it come down to kind of look. And two means that after you've called someone a Nazi, kind of have no road left to go down there. Yeah. Everyone uh, else is just a Nazi as well. And I mean, at the Mitt Romney, I can remember what Mitt Romney was. The things that were said about Mitt Romney oh. when he was alive. People are currently passing around John McCain's concession speech yeah, from when he ran against Obama. Yeah, yeah, and you that. want some good fun. Go and look at the things that the American media said about McCain when he was running. And it was. He explicitly called him racist. Multiple news agencies. But now he is... There's no chance of McCain running for president because he's dead. So now, you know, he's a respectable man who was trying his best and, you know, just a good, decent man. Mitt Romney was the guy who was literally going to put African-Americans back in chains. Oh, yes, as, as Biden so eloquently put it. The, the nicest man to run for the presidency in a hundred years. By, you know. A man so straight-laced that when Saturday Night Live wanted to satirize him, the only thing they could come up with is that he may in fact be secretly drinking milk. <laughs> yeah. God, can you imagine? Milk. But that, listen, they, what they didn't say about, and then of course four years later they're going, you know what, actually, maybe we were wrong about Romney. Uh, there was a comment from one journalist, which I thought absolutely got it right. He said, you know what, four years ago, myself and all my colleagues were sitting around and at dinner parties and talking to our friends and everybody just kept saying the same thing. 
I can't understand how X or Y or Z could vote for this man. I can't understand how they voted for him. I can't understand how, you know what? And he said, lads, guys, we had four years. That was our job. Our job for the last four years was to try and understand why these people, because the same people and more of them have done it again. And we don't seem to have any further, we don't seem to be any further on in, 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 in that process. I mean, I'll give you a number here. Now, again, we're allowing that these figures are accurate enough. Uh, I don't know, did you see, Gary, the, 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 religion, the breakdown of the religious vote? Um, of the Protestants who voted, 61 voted for Trump. 50% voted for Trump for, for Catholics, which is higher, I think, the last, than uh, last time. I think he is, uh, the Clinton got the majority of Christian. Mormons, 71%, that is expected. Jewish, 30%. But here's the one. Muslims. 35% of Muslims voted for Trump. Now, you might say, well, it's only 35%, but that's quite a bit of an increase on the previous, on the previous uh, vote. And 35% is not insubstantial. Most Muslims in the United States are from what would be an ethnicity which would be considered but not white. But as one Muslim was saying today, you know what? There are conservative Muslims. I don't know why anybody's surprised by that. I think it would also be important to point out that the general socioeconomic economic background of Muslims in America is very different from the general socioeconomic background of Muslims in Europe. You would certainly say Muslims in France are in, are in Germany, yes. Yeah, American Muslims tend to be much more highly educated, tend to be more from a sort of middle class background, which again makes it slightly more surprising that they would go for Trump because Trump does not do all that well amongst the college educated. But did better. He did do better. Did better. He did worse with white men or with white people as a whole and did better across ethnic minorities. He was even up with black women. That was one of the things that I, I found the, the oddest. I was, give, I was showing some figures which said that the Republicans did a big registration push this year leading up to the election. And their ground game apparently was very successful. And one thing they reported, not massive numbers, but statistically significant numbers of first-time voters, black women, registering as Republicans. And that really was made, because last time out, somewhere, Hillary got something like 99 to 1 of black women. I think it was actually 96% of black women, 96, 97% of black women voted Hillary as opposed to I think 84% of black men. So black women was just, that was everybody was voting Democrat. Trump goes up in that, he goes up in every category. It's really, it's white men let him down. If we want to use that language. It's white men, he's down five points, I think. Was it Gary? Uh, yes, now I, that was, there was a point in the election where as it was splitting and it was swinging between Trump and Biden, where it looked like if Biden won, it was going to be because of places like Georgia. And if Trump won, it was going to be because of black women. Which was just a fabulous moment, which I'm sure no one in the punditry class in America will at all consider, because they had things pre-written, and, you know, you've got to put them ahead. I mean, the New York Times has already put pieces out saying that the results showed the power of white patriarchy, <laughs> and that it showed that a certain percentage of minorities will choose to help the oppressors. And you're like, maybe they're just people. Maybe they liked his platform. 
No, no, you can't allow that. It's stock. It's a for- Stockholm syndrome. That I think was the interesting thing, and that kind of brings me to what I think is the interesting thing of this uh, election. The overall impact of this election is likely to be Biden gets elected, the GOP has the Senate, and the GOP is going to effectively castrate Biden for the next two years. Yeah, it's worth pointing out they were pretty well, solidly expected to lose the Senate race. Uh, on Nate Silver had them with a seventy-five, the Democrats seventy-five percent chance of taking the control of the Senate. Not only did they not, t- they lost seats in the House, and which puts them in a position that when the, the the midterms come in two years' time, and America is now at that stage dealing, we imagine with the post-COVID reality, which most likely ain't going to be pretty. And Biden hasn't really been able to do anything because, as you say, he'll be castrated by the Senate. There's a fairly decent... Well, shall we say the, the, the gap has been narrowed in the House and you could easily see Biden in the last two years of his presidency dealing with a Republican Senate and a Republican House, which ain't going to be fun. If, of course, Biden is president in two years' time. Yeah. So the GOP... Holding the Senate is really the core of... GOP at this point. As long as they hold the Senate, Biden can't pack the courts. Exactly. And they can push Biden. Every cabinet position has to go through the Senate. Now, McConnell isn't wanna, is go, isn't going to want to make every single one of those a fight, but I'd say he's already talking to people going, look, if you put forward effectively candidates who are fairly centrist, no progressives, no lunatics, no one our people don't like, we'll get them through. And if you don't, well, we don't have to get them true. And that might work well for Biden, because then Biden can go back to the progressive wing and go, well, this is what we can get. This is all we can get, or we can't even get a cabinet in. Yeah, and one of the things that is part of American politics, which is a bit slightly different to us here, is after every presidential election, they talk about the degree to which a president has a mandate. What is the size of the na- or the nature of his mandate? And there is this, there's a sense, and maybe that's the politics as well, because the bigger the mandate, the bigger the result, the better the result, that has a, an effect on the afterwards on their ability to bring in senators and, and, and House to, after, in elections afterwards, you can use their personal popularity. But Biden, as it stands, it doesn't look like he's going to have what you call a massive mandate. This is a tight election whatever way you cut it. Look at the House race, the Senate race, and the presidential race. I think there are, there are two people, there are two groups of people deeply disappointed with the result of this. And that is the Democratic Party and the never-Trump Republicans. Now, I imagine Donald Trump is actually quite upset about this before. But yeah. most of the people I know in the Republican Party are not upset about this. I mean, we talked about this before, Michael. Yes. Basic, if Trump loses... He's already achieved a lot of his policies. He's already got so many judges into not just the Supreme Court, but the federal courts. I think 30% of all federal judges are now are Trump appointees. So at that point, you don't need Donald Trump. So this may not be a great time for Donald Trump personally, but like, you know, right off into the sunset, old warhorse. And also he has done... Well, listen, we don't know... Post hoc propter hoc is a logical fallacy, which what that means, we tend to believe because something happened after something else, the thing that happened before it caused it. What we're seeing here, it seems to be a, a, a breaking down of that 
minority coalition which is so important to the Democrats that you're seeing the beginnings of the splintering away of particularly younger black voters are, are more willing to consider voting Republican, Latinos, Hispanics are willing are, are voting Republican, Asians, etc. Now, maybe Trump caused that. Maybe that's just the nature of cycles and politics and generations in America. You said, Gary, before you know, ancient loyalties can disappear. Of course, um, the classic example of that is, in fact, the the black vote in the United States. Republicans ended slavery. Nineteen sixty is the year uh, where we mentioned as, as this great turnover year. But for a hundred years before that, in eighteen sixty, Abraham ele- Abraham Lincoln was elected on a opposed by the Democrats in the southern in the South went on to fight the Civil War and bring in emancipation. So for pretty well a hundred years, on you had a, a connection between the Democratic Party, the Republican Party and, and black voters. Now, that started to be eroded a bit by the New Deal, but there was still a strong black Republican vote. And that went on for a hell of a long time. We're now 60, we're what? That's six, 1960, 60 years ago. Maybe it's simply it's the, it's the, it's a changing there, but whatever whatever the reasons, it's happening. So that means if you can produce a candidate, they kept saying you know the future of the, the American of the Republican Party is Florida, and that the Republican Party is going to be a working class, a multi ethnic, working class conservative party. Well, if that's if that's the way it's going to go, you know. Uh, that kind of ties into what I was saying about why the Democratic Party and the Never Trumpers are going to be upset. This was meant to be an election that, per the polling, would have ended any sort of move in that direction if they had gotten the result that was projected. Because it yeah. would have just dealt a crushing blow to the project and people would have said, okay, it's not an electoral runner. The fact that Donald Trump did so well and peeled off so many minority voters is going to have people in the Republican Party, and I can already see some of them discussing it, particularly in the think tanks around it, the conservative, not the libertarian ones, going, okay, if we were to take Trump's message, and we were to focus more on that, rather than anything that the libertarian side likes, and we were to find someone who could deliver that message, and has some of the positive qualities of Donald Trump, but not all of the negative qualities... How do we think we'd do? And the answer seems to be that we think that that would devastate the Democratic Party and they would effectively become what we've always said they are, which is a party of East Coast intellectuals saying that they represent racial minorities who no longer vote for them. Uh, if want, uh, uh, some, of the, some of this shift has been quite dramatic. I, if you look, for example, look at Texas, right? Now... For a long time, Texas has been on the Democrats' horizon for for a couple of election cycles now, in the belief that in the, in American parlance, the Texas would turn blue. In in America, red states are Republican, blue states are Democrat, and purple states are you know they're toss-up states. And that the change, the inc- the decrease in the white population, the increase in the Latino population, but also Texas is getting a lot of people coming in to live there who are fleeing California. 
No, it's a bit odd to me, but they flee California because of the things that's happening in California and because of the things that are happening in Texas they like, but they bring their Californian politics with them uh, to do exactly to Texas what they've already done to California. But listen, that's a whole other story. But if you look at uh, some of the voting in Texas, there, are, there, a, there was a, a county on the border, which is the largest Latino population in the United States. It's also one of the poorest counties in the United States. And there was a swing. Biden, I think, still won it. But say Hillary had won this with a margin of something like 60 percent. Uh, six, like she was twenty eighty split. Biden won it by ten percent. Like there's a fifty percent shift to Trump. At one stage in the early voting, it white suburban voters in Trump in Houston, white suburban voters uh, were voting in in Houston and in Dallas Fort Worth. Fort Worth is much more Republican than Dallas, I think. Were voting Biden, and it was looking a bit. Oh God, what's going on here? And what saves the day is these Latino voters, at least in part, these Latino voters coming out in the south and south and the west of Texas voting for Trump that nobody expected. I mean, I I saw I saw there that um, Der Spiegel was uh, talking about Trump during the week, and Der Spiegel have a tradition of referring to Trump as a Nero and comparing him to him, the the Roman Emperor. Yeah, and I think that is actually that I I described that that sort of con- coalition before of the sort of multiracial monocultural or largely monocultural is effectively the Roman design. Yeah, because that's what you saw in the Roman Empire. They took things from the culture around them, but there was always a core of this is what it means to be Roman. And you had you could have an emperor who is black, but was perfectly accepted because culturally he was Roman, and you had white emperors who were utterly unacceptable because they had not gone to the right schools. They were not Roman. And I think that's that's where the uh, where the momentum will pull the GOP. Now, there will be immense pushback against that because the GOP, since the days of Barry Goldwater, has effectively followed a policy called fusionism, where you combine social conservatism and economic conservatism even though they don't really mesh all that well together on certain aspects. And the basic deal was that the economic conservatives would give money and the social conservatives would deliver the votes. And it is worn very uncomfortably for many years with the social conservatives, who mostly are way more left-wing economically. They like, or tend to like, social security, supports fairness, all of that sort of nonsense, Michael. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's true. I, to an extent. I think it works both ways, you know. It's like a lot of these things. Social conservatives in the, in the Republican Party probably are more economically right-wing now than they would have been 30 years ago. They've been affected a little bit by that. And I think it also depends if you're in the South and the North. I think Northern social conservatives tend to be more economically left-wing in the south they're still but yeah they care about other stuff they're for start they're religious they're christians and that will mean that they will have a different world view about you know helping my brother and charity and you know the prodigal son and the good samaritan that kind of stuff 
they're not Wall Street uh, hedge fund guys. They see things slightly differently. And there is a tension. In a, in a way, Gary, we could say that what we're seeing here is a form of the kind of realignment that we have seen already in the United Kingdom. And we're seeing in other parts of Europe today. It's a broad realignment where the old kind of secular neoliberal Milton Friedman economics stuff married with a, a social conservatism that was given the nod really rather than ever taken seriously. That marriage is breaking down. Yeah, I mean, that was the point made by social conservatives in America that, well, we're told we're all on the same team. But yet, even in the times we could have, we can never really seem to get rid of, let's say, Roe v. Wade. Never actually, we never seem to get to that one. And I know they, they did feel like they were kind of hanger-ons. Yeah. It'll be interesting if this happens, because that would move the political divide in America away from the sort of, not racial divide it's now, but there is a racial element to it to one which is rather explicitly class-based. And you could see a version of fusionism then in the Democratic Party, as they try and keep as much of their coalition as they can, with the more progressive wing effectively being given social issues they care about, and a much wider push for companies to push those social issues. Mm. It's going to be tricky. I mean, all of this will be tricky for everybody. There will be an immense amount of pushback internally in the Republican Party. A lot of the think tank uh, infrastructure, a lot of the general Republican infrastructure is, I mean, it could be founded or funded by the Koch brothers. It could be libertarian. You have some people like um, Heritage, who I would say at this point, if they don't already have the plans drawn up, are drawing up plans to how to make this move a reality. But there will be immense internal pushback and they will lose people. So... It may be that they think it's too difficult and they don't make the change. But as someone who is more economically on the right, in many ways, the the old way of doing business just doesn't seem to be a great runner in a lot of the world anymore. Mm. And we have to be open to the possibility that, you know, maybe we're wrong about some stuff. I think the, the thing I would have preferred that there was more discussion about was free trade and globalism generally. I think... When we, the way we looked at it, and the way, just in general, the way society looked at it, by saying, oh, well, we, we liberalize these areas of trade, and, you know, we can now buy TVs, and they are cheaper, and these electronic goods are cheaper. And when you look at that across the country, everyone is a little bit better off, or maybe a good bit better off, and that is a unanimous uh, good. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think. A more deep diving look at that, where we had went, okay, we keep passing these things and everyone keeps getting better off, but are the gains distributed across society while the harms are concentrated? As in, is there a class of people who's just getting fucked by this? Yeah, I, I, I was talking, I've been talking about this to friends recently, well, the last couple of years, slightly coming from yeah i see what you're you're saying but my my wondering that for a long time on the right the only metric for success has been does this increase gdp by more percents than something else if this will increase gdp by two percent but this will increase gdp by four percent this is the thing to do but that is that may not 
I suppose that ultimately what it's, it's a similar kind of thing because of course that 4% increase in GDP may end up not necessarily it's a national increase but how it's distributed across the nation may be increasingly problematic and it may be that sometimes while we want to grow the economy and it's important particularly when you western countries have as much debt as they do if you don't keep growing the economy then you're going to be in very very big trouble very quickly that maybe there are times that you're better could go for three percent than four percent for the point of view of the society for the people living within it, it i don't know if that's true i'm just saying that it, it has occurred to me that that may be true that, our, that there may there, there may be things that we are if we're going to go for the four percent there are th there are other things we have to do within the society that up to now we haven't been doing because you can't just abandon people and that's if you look at what happened in, in England, you know, in this, the 80s. Now, I don't blame Margaret Thatcher for what she, or the Tories for their industrial policy. And, but the pro, the pro, because it, ultimately you're faced with the problem of an industrial policy which had been going on for so long had created a completely untenable situation with a lot of these industries. So they were faced with the problem of culling, if you like, those industries. And that decimated swathes of Wales, the centre, the north, the northeast, and the northwest of England, and parts of Scotland. When the mines closed, when the steel factories closed, when the pits closed, when the when the, the shipyards closed, the factories closed. Absolutely, ten I mean, percent isn't that bad of a loss. They were decimated. But I think you mean devastated. Des yes, devastated. That is the hill I will die on. That word. Well, I, they might it even decimated from dec ten. Decimated one in ten. Decimation would have been pretty bad as well. Uh, ten percent unemployment, losing one in ten of your jobs. But they were the industrial policy up to then had created a situation which wasn't tenable. You need they had failed to allow these things to to come and to go organically to allow Schumpeter Schumpeter's idea of your know, creative destruction to happen within the economy. So they were left with these things and they had to go. But we need to maybe look at how we're going to manage these things. But anyway, listen, that's not for us to decide. But I think it's part of the discussion that's leading to where I just just going back there very quickly to say what I was saying about the uh, the situation with the Latino voters. I there's the the county I was talking about. There's is a, in the south uh, east of Texas near the Gulf called Star County. It's 96 percent Latino, right? Clinton won at 60, plus 60. Biden won at plus 5. Now that's massive. That's, and that's on the border. But, now the reason I'm going back to this, because we're talking about the pushback. They're Latino voters, right? Then you have somebody like Ocasio-Cortez, who is a Latina. And a spokesperson for Latina and Hispanic voters, and for the Democratic Party, and for the poor. And these are very poor people in Star County. And they are Hispanic. And she is a natural spokesperson for them. The problem is, Gary, their values are light years away from hers. That seems to be... The Democratic Party is a grand coalition of competing interests that have... In the Republicans, there tends to be two large ones, and then the Libertarians, who kind of are just there. Well, they're kind of the policy wonks. 
Yeah. And then, but in the Democratic Party, you have dozens of these things. And they've managed to keep it together through, I mean, some actually really adroit political work. But if the Republicans can point out that they actually more closely uh, reflect the views of minority voters, that'd take a chunk out of the Democrats. That the Democrats, unless the Republicans lost a substantial amount of the white vote they've kept on, the white working class, which is about 40% of America, they would uh, effectively cut out most of the routes the Democrats would have to power. Yeah, it'd be, it's a real, real problem for them. And they think that it's inevitable that they'll win, which I said has meant that they haven't really invested in actually building a lot of links into some of those communities. So the Republicans have assumed it was impossible to move that needle. And, you know, do you remember the three-minute mile, Michael? Yeah. For years, no one could run one of these things. And with the four, Couldn't be done. Four-minute mile. Sorry, the four-minute mile. Couldn't be done. And then one person broke it. And other people kind of looked at it and went, that can be done. And then within a year of it being broken, swathes of people break it. Yeah. And if the Republican Party takes this as a link that they can actually take these minority voters, I have a feeling that if they start applying pressure, they will find it substantially easier in some areas than they think. Also, let's the, the Republican Party in the last 20 years has slowly, slowly, yes, incrementally, yes, not massively, yes. But if you look, for example, at the number of Hispanic or Latino members of Senate and Congress, they have significant significantly increased the number of Hispanic politicians uh, prominent in the Republican Party. And that's important. It's so that it's in, in nothing else that when people look at the party, they look and think, oh, there are. There are people like me. And black, and, and that's happening now even with, with black Republicans. There are coming on. And, and all you have to do is chip away. You don't have to take all those votes. What would be an interesting one? is two years of obstructionism in the Senate. See how that plays into the midterm. The Democrats don't have Donald Trump to energize them anymore. Mm. See what the Republicans can do. And then run someone like Tucker Carlson. I know people are doing this Tucker Carlson thing. Uh, do we think Tucker not, Carlson? Not, you don't, it doesn't need to be Tucker Carlson. But someone like Tucker Carlson. Someone in that vein. Because Tucker Carlson is broadly in this space as well. And who is just, by most accounts, a pleasant human. Mm. While also being quite clearly someone who isn't going to take a lot of shit. There will be a lot of competition for the next nomination because I think a lot of Republicans think that uh, Joe Biden has a a little bit of one-term president written about him. I mean, yeah, I I think you'll see people like Josh Hawley, who is... um, He's a senator from Missouri. He's actually already started talking about how the future of the uh, Republican Party is mm. a uh, multiracial uh, working class party. It'll be interesting to see how easily the Republicans, if they decide to go in that direction, can bring their people. Not the ones who are racist, but the ones who, you know, not racist, but not terribly fond of the idea of America becoming less white. You know, I, I don't know America's, but to 
from the Americans that I know and from the, what I read, I'm not massively convinced that that many Americans care about America, is it white or not? No, I, I, th I, I think that if you if they play it right and say, listen, this isn't about white America, this is about being American. And they, the big difference, the, the Democrats have, and liberals in America, and this is all over the world, are increasingly uncomfortable with what they call overarching or superior identities. We all have loads of identities. That's fine when people talk about, you know, um, identity politics and things. You're from a town, you're from a county, you're from a place, you have a religion, you have an ethnicity, all these. But ultimately what brings you together as a nation is, and particularly the United States, which was always a big thing, was a very important thing, was you had an overarching so, supranational identity, which was the idea of being American. No, I, I think you're right on that. And I, I think there are people in America who think they're concerned about the racial demographics of America, but are actually concerned about what it means to be an American. And if that could be presented in that way, as in this is not a loss of cultural identity, this is in fact just an American cultural identity, I think that those people might move over. And as I said, like I, I've had a great deal of contact with the Republican Party, and I've run into a few racists, a few like died-in-the-wall racists, but the majority of them, the vast, vast majority of them, are not racist. Which is kind of confusing when you're in Ireland, because the, the Irish media on the Republican Party is... Actually, the Irish media on... In Ireland is pretty bad. When talking about foreign countries like America, shit. Just very few redeeming qualities. So they just say things, and you sort of go, if you've ever been to America, or if you've ever talked to anyone in either of the political parties, that's just immediately horseshit. Now, I, there's an example that describes them. You know, um, what's, is, is, it, is it Ben, ben Crenshaw? The Texas House member, Republican, ex-Navy SEAL. Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw. Well, a mate of his is running in the 17th district, Texas 17th district, uh, running against a Democrat. He didn't win the seat, as it turned out, uh, called Wesley Hunt, I think. Now, Wesley Hunt was running for a Republican. And he's, to me, is the example of the kind of Republican candidate. He's, 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 a, a, he's an African-American candidate. African-American man, he come in his family, between himself, his brother, his sister and his father, there are a total of 60 years in the American military. His father retired after 30 years or something as a lieutenant colonel. He served, his sister served, his brother served. He's this handsome, conservative, yeah, socially conservative, Religious family man, you know, beautiful family, beautiful wife, beautiful kids, all this stuff. That kind of narrative so appeals to that kind of American vote that because he is all about America. Now, and also, I mean, we, we know the American army is probably the most successfully integrated institution in the United States and has long been a source of advancement for ethnic minorities in the United States, Latinos and, and, and African-Americans can go into the army and, and, be, and be very successful and 
go to college, come out, do postgrad, etc. Famously, Colin Powell became chief of, he was the joint chief of staff. But they speak to that notion of service and of nation that when he talks, people don't look at him and think, oh, this is an example of the unwhitening of America. This is the this is the narrative. This is the idea. In a sense, this speaks to the the ideal of what America can be, that somebody can start from nothing, like his father comes from back in not quite Jim Crow days, but sitting at the back of the bus kind of days, and end up as a lieutenant colonel. And he has three kids that go to West Point, end up going to Harvard and doing and Stanford and doing masters. And coming out and running for the American, running for Congress. This is the American dream, and it confirms for them, it affirms again, the possibilities that that positive, optimistic possibility of America. They're not. It's not this sense of oh, we are of complaining, of whining, that we are we're being done down, we're being held back. Yes, talking about problems, talking about issues, talking about racism, but always in the context of this positive, optimistic American dream. And if I think that if Republicans, they can get people like that to be part of this new coalition, I, I don't think that, they, that there's, there's, ne there's going to be a big problem to bring along the base with them. As long as they're speaking to their values, I think that's what they'll hear more. Neither of us live there, and it's very easy for us to say. I mean, what we don't know what it would be like to be a young black man living in the projects or parts of the south. But from everything that we're told, the polling of African Americans is that they, there's a definite sense that whatever it's like today, it's better than it was ten years ago. And ten years it was better. Ten years ago it was better than it was than it was twenty years ago, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I. I... I I am I'm not terribly surprised that particularly black Americans have started to move away from the Democratic Party now, or at least in this election, we'll see if it's sustainable and we'll see if the Republican Party has it. Because I don't think the Democratic Party knows how to talk to them in any way that actually relates to anything other than pretty much identity politics. There was a thing that happened uh, earlier in the year, Michael, that I'm not sure if you saw it. It was. It involved a bunch of scientists. Now, a scientist or a, a, an editor of a, a scientific magazine put up a thing on Twitter asking scientists, "What animal do you think is overhyped? Is overrated?" And someone said uh, flatworms, or sorry, the roundworm. And that, because it's the internet, escalated into this denunciation of privilege and racism and accusations of sexism being thrown around and you knew you knew every person involved in that was a democrat that wouldn't have happened with republicans the roundworm the roundworm apparently it was a uh, microaggression because some researchers had gotten grants based on roundworms and roundworms are apparently one of the i think possibly the first creature that had its genome sequence, and then because some of the research involved in that area are black and are women, that obviously added a racial argument, and then, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. It actually but, became a like, legitimate scandal in the scientific community. 
but this you're talking a few months ago. Remember a few months ago that Smith was the Smithsonian did that thing on you know that we shouldn't offensive white values. Oh yes, like timeliness and the uh, work ethic and rationality. No, you know I, that's going to be a great way to to win black voters over to you. Because I'm sure, like, if, if you walked into a place in England, Michael, and it was uh, promoting you know, the Irish culture and said things like, well, you don't need to rely on them to be timely or to work hard because those are English values. Yeah. I don't feel I would feel comforted by the views of the people who set that up. Oh, on a subject which is completely separate, but you mentioned England and the Irish. Did you see this? Did you see this? The survey, the study that came out on ethnic breakdown of economic success in the UK. And uh, not recently. No. Yeah, the Irish came out uh, up at the, at the at at the top. I did see this one. This was a, a week or two ago, wasn't it? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Um, higher than Chinese Britons, higher than Indians. Um, it was just the reason it was, it was weird is because for a very long time. Irish in Britain had done really badly under every metric, uh, income, drug addiction, alcoholism, likelihood to be involved in crime, like time spent in prison. Uh, also, it was, they were a very unusual immigrant population in that at one stage they were doing, they were the only immigrant, significant immigrant population that was doing worse off than people at home. Now, what's happened? Possibly, what's happening also at the beginning in, in with with African Americans now is what Thomas Sowell has long talked about is the fact that immigrant populations or or minority populations that believe that the way to economic advancement is through politics are always are disappointed. That the, those groups that advance through entrepreneurials or skills or trade whatever and basically leave politics alone tend to do better and more quickly and he always used the example of the, the Irish in America he said the Irish were the, by distance the most politically organized and most politically successful of all of the immigrant groups that come into the United States say between 1860 and 1920 and they are very successful uh, uh, politically but actually do worse, or shall we say, are, are improve their lot considerably more slowly than other ethnic groups, like say Scandinavians, uh, Russian Jews, Eastern European Jews, Germans, whatever. Black America has tended to associate, in the same way as Irish America did for a long time, political success, political power, political organization, with what with with what was going to give. Uh, economic advancement. It may be that we're now also looking at a population where a section of that population has now fallen out of love with that idea and has decided that there are actually other vehicles that are going to be more successful. That they've tried this and frankly they're not getting much out of the deal and they have said you know what in places like if you look at places like Atlanta and other cities in the south where you've got very significant uh, black middle classes involved in business, uh, in finance, technology, all these areas, entrepreneurs, people starting their own business. Maybe the culture is changing there and they're thinking, you know, 
maybe we'll do better off if we go elsewhere. And they are possibly going to be more amenable to a Republican message because of that. And also maybe a sense, you know what? And this is what Trump, of course, was saying for a long time. You know, guys, give me your vote. Lend me your vote. I can't do any worse than those other guys. They've been promising you heaven for years. And have they really done it? Have you? Are you that much better off for consistently giving the Democrats your vote? So, I mean, just before we close up, one, one thing that would be interesting, I suppose before about there are two groups, I think, really dislike that. And obviously it probably seems a bit odd not to put the Republican Party in that. But the section of the actual Republican Party that would be upset about this is rapidly narrowing. And the worse Donald Trump publicly makes this, rather than just doing it quietly and starting the legal cases, the narrower that will become. Most of the Republican higher-ups think they've got what they need, and if this is the end of Trump, this is the end of Trump. They're not terribly broken up about it. Now, had they lost the Senate, yes, this would be a whole different game. But the fact they have the Senate means they can largely neuter the president. And if Biden wants to go over and like fuck up the Israeli trade deal or the Israeli peace deals that Trump set up, fair enough. But you might think, no, the Democrats aren't going to be uh, broken up about this. They got the presidency. There is a caucus call going on as we are recording. Yeah. With the Democrats. They're all they're all on it. Um, all of the, the House Democrats. And if you... It's political reporters from a couple of um, the newspapers are leaking things from it pretty much in real time. And it's not going well. Like, people are screaming at each other. People are crying. Pelosi is trying to take order and saying, well, you know, they won the House and the presidency, to which other people are sort of going, we had the House already. Yeah. And we now have, it looks like we'll have less seats. There's people attacking the progressive wing, saying that stuff like defund police just led to endless attack ads from the Republicans. And all it was was just clip after clip of Democrats saying, let's get rid of police. And you know what? If you wanted one single explanation of why uh, black voters, some black voters voted Republican, that might simply defund the police. It might sound great with black, with, with black Lives Matter supporters, but for, we know from from lots of work that was done in this talking, uh, surveying and polling black communities around the United States, they don't want the police to go away. If anything, they want, okay, they want better policing, they want better training, but they want more police, not less. Well, this is a thing you see kind of across the Western world. Advocates on criminal justice position themselves as representing the will of lower income people and being a benefit to them because the majority of those incarcerated for crimes are from lower socioeconomic groupings. Yeah. This is perfectly true. The socioeconomic grouping that tends to be the harshest on crime, as in, like, just hang them all, yeah. is lower people from lower socioeconomic classifications and groupings, which makes perfect sense because criminals tend to prey on people near them. So while the majority of criminals are from those socioeconomic groupings, the majority of victims of crime are from those socioeconomic groupings. So hard line on it is not surprising. But there's no. loads of issues like that where the, the advocates and the, the NGO types 
see themselves as representing a group of people and bettering that group of people when the people they say they're representing have totally different views. Peter Moskos, who is the he's a liberal democrat but he's he's the he's the he's the guy in john jay college you see him quite a bit on the internet talking about policing issue he's not he's shall we say he's sympathetic enough to the police and that's what he his area of expertise is policing and he was speaking he was quite angry about this he said if you look for example at crime in new york he said the figures it's horrendous because he keeps oh crime is down he said crime is down so Theft, largely, burglary is down. Murders are way up. And he said, the thing about it is, these people, the same people who are taking away money from the from the budget in the, I think in New York, they got rid of the, thing, the Serious Crimes Unit, which had been historically very successful at uh, dealing with homicides. That, that was abolished. And he said, look at who's been murdered. Look at, look at the people who've been murdered. And I think in 100 murders that had been at that stage, over a month or something, not one white person had been murdered. So yes, it's, he said it's all very, it's all, it's great. Like for for these people living on on the Upper East Side, I say these things because I hear them on, I hear them in television programs, and I know the Upper East Side is where the like the wealthy people live in Manhattan. He said it's all very well for these people because they're not the ones being murdered. They're not the ones who are being caught in the crossfire. Are the ones in, in the ones in the in the in the projects in Chicago and are in LA, so they're living in their uh, secure apartment blocks. They're fine, but for the communities that are being that are suffering from this, they take, they want to see their police. They want police responding, and the, and also being physically present. So yeah, absolutely. There's a sense of where we're doing this, we're doing this for the community, but actually the the community you're doing it for. Has is not invested in this notion. The community wants fairness. Yes, they want the judicial system to treat them fairly and well. They want to be able to feel that they're going to get if they do get end up in a court that they're going to get a due process and a fair trial. They want to be treated equally and safely by the police, but they also want to be protected against the bad guys, and they don't care what colour the bad guys are. And I think on that very uplifting note. We will end it for today. It's likely by the time this podcast go live uh, that Joe Biden will have been elected president, a position he will take next year. So we have uh, a couple of months of Donald Trump anyway. And as the Republicans held the Senate, the lame duck session may be slightly less lame duck than it was last time. <laughs> yeah, I think that could well be true. I suspect there's tons of stuff we will want to get through. That may be slightly complicated by the fact the old school GOP seems to be deserting Donald Trump at record speed, which may piss him off slightly. Yeah, I think I think I think we'll be spending quite a bit of time in court. But listen, if that's what keeps him happy. Anyway, we should be back on Sunday and as I said we can be discussing I don't know, the na- the size of the nature and the magnitude of the Brighton win at that stage. But until then, enjoy your weekend and uh, stay safe. All the best. <laughs>